as you're doing these things, you're building a foundation, you're building some technique, and you're getting this, you're getting these basic skills uh, into your fingers and into your brain, and that's really the the essence of what restaurant cooking is. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode twenty-eight. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello folks, Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. A couple of things first. Head on over to my podcasts page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts, and check out my social media buttons. You can join my Eating Liberty Facebook group, where I'm in there talking to food, and there's some other chefs, and just some really good people chit-chatting about food and liberty. You can also support me at Patreon if you appreciate what's going on here. I'll throw a couple bucks my way to keep the proverbial lights on. Please do find, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. The more reviews the show gets, the higher it moves up in the ranks, and the more people who get listening. And the more people who get listening are the more people who get cooking. And lastly, please do share the shows on your favorite social media, Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. Undoing the damage from a failed education is a challenge. Where do you go? What do you read to bridge that gap? Tom Wood's Liberty Classroom was created to do just that. Liberty Classroom has over 20 courses on history, economics, politics, and logic. Each lecture is about 30 minutes long, which is perfect for the commute home or to work, or for your time in the gym, or in the kitchen, or in the garden. Click over with my affiliate link to culinarylibertarian.com slash bite back and bite back against the education you were denied. culinarylibertarian.com slash bite back. Doing a onesie today. I heard some people mentioning cooking on autopilot. I took that to mean cooking effortlessly. Well... Cooking isn't effortless, even if it looks like it is. But it can be made easier with some plans and some ideas, and that's what I want to present today. So, here I am, talking about how to make cooking dinner a bit less stressful for hungry mouths to feed. Does cooking dinner make you feel like you're a contestant on the Gordon Ramsay cooking show? Here's a pile of ingredients. You've got 30 minutes to make something amazing or you lose. Everybody feels like that. Sometimes I look in the fridge or at the pantry and I wonder, (laughs) what in the heck am I supposed to do with that? I've mentioned before that restaurant cooking and home cooking bear almost no relationship to each other. Yes, they have heat and pans and ingredients, but that's pretty much where it ends. Restaurants have hands and knives and ingredients and containers and built-in hope that all the equipment can inspire. 
Home has kids' shoes and backpacks and mail and grocery bags and pets and disorder and on and on and on. What is a person to do? I want to talk about how to navigate the kitchen, survey the ingredients in the cooler, sorry, that's cook speak for fridge, and the pantry, and be able to make a dinner that's quick, easy, doable, and tasty. That may seem like a lot, and we'll get there. In your life or in your job, you have a skill set which you take for granted. You spent years doing your job, and you know this stuff. If you have hobbies or have become really good at them, say woodworking or painting or sports, that happened a little bit at a time, building on one skill to improve onto the next one. That foundation of skills done properly is technique. Cooking is the same thing. There are some obvious differences. If you miss a deadline at work, you might lose the client, and that's bad. If you burn the onions, you might lose confidence and time and ingredients, which is bad, but it also adds a giant wrinkle. You're out of onions. What do you do now? Well, that's actually another show. Just to show you I know how it feels to be out of your depth, I dabble at internet marketing. I am told that can be very successful and rewarding. I am told many people do amazingly well at this and they support their families in a lifestyle to which I would like to become accustomed. I am told it is so, but those are unicorns as far as I am concerned, mythical creatures which do not exist. So, dinner, good dinner, in a short amount of time is doable. About this, I know things. So let's talk about some basics. Tools. You're going to need some basic tools. You will need a few knives. A chef's knife, sometimes called a French knife, and a paring knife are, to me, the absolute basics. A slicer and or a serrated knife for bread and a boning knife for fish or meat or chicken. Well, that's further down the line, and that's not, to me, an absolute necessity. Good couple of knives is a necessity. Cutting boards. You're going to need at least two cutting boards. You're going to need a plastic, poly, whatever that stuff is for meat. And I have actually two. I have a, a wood one and a bamboo one. And the plastic one is only for the meats. The small wood one, which is the bamboo, is for produce. I cut the apples or peel oranges or something else on there. And then the big wooden one is for pretty much everything else. And all of that does is help minimize cross-contamination. That's into sanitation. Sanitation is important. And this is one of the things I think home cooks probably are better at than restaurant cooks. Yeah, sorry, it's true. At least in some, to some degree it is. I'm, uh, washing your hands is critical. And the single best way to reduce the likelihood of getting sick is just wash your hands frequently. Wash your tools, wash your cutting boards, wash your counter. Just be fastidious. Pans. You have pans at home. Now, are those the best pans? I'm not sure. But I am sure that they don't need to be 
the best pans. I worked at a place once where the general manager was explaining to the owner that the reason his asabuco wasn't coming out well was he didn't have the right pan. <laughs> and, when, and when the owner told me this story, I laughed just like that. I, I sort of laughed in the boss's face because it's a, it's a fairly idiotic thing to say. Uh, I assure you, this person's asabuco did not come out well for other reasons than the pan. Almost entirely, it was the human. Now, uh, it is possible to spend a tremendous amount of money on a couple of pans, and I don't see really the reason to do that, quite honestly. If you're in a restaurant, maybe. If you're going to be using them 10 to 12 hours a day, six days a week, uh, that's a lot of wear and tear. Then that's an investment in the business, and that's fine. At home, a good quality pan should last years, and some of mine are 25 years old, so... Uh, and they weren't that expensive. So a good pan is important. The best pan is not important. So pans, just like knives, do matter. Quality is important. Everybody has a big pen or a paper may pen. And that's the kind of thing you'll be carrying in your pocket. And you might even take that to the ballpark and get the autograph from your favorite player. You're not going to take a Mont Blanc to the ballpark. The illusion is you you need a pan, you just don't need the best pan. Okay, now you've come home from work. You've got 30 minutes to get something ready before the patience of the family starts to wear thin. So, here are some tips. Small cuts of things cook faster than big cuts of things. So, a sliced chicken breast is going to cook in the pan much more quickly than the whole chicken breast. So one-pan dinners are good ways to get food on the table in a hurry. Uh, one-pan dinners are faster than multi-pan dinners. So, for example, we have this thinly sliced chicken breast, some thinly sliced onions, some garlic, and by the way, slicing the garlic as thin as they did in Goodfellas does work. It's, it takes a little practice. I don't recommend doing it every time, but it's, it's fun to try. Uh, also, some diced tomatoes, some extra virgin olive oil, maybe some black olives, uh, some pasta. Okay, so now we're into a two-pan dinner because you had to cook the pasta in a pot. But still, we're talking mostly a one-pan dinner and not a nine-pan dinner. Uh, if pasta isn't your preference every night, the same ingredients can be used and cooked a little bit more differently to get a dinner on the table. Let's say you're going to have the whole chicken breast. Uh, some green beans, some uh, diced up potatoes can make another nice dinner. Or you could take that whole chicken breast and then have some wild rice or some cooked dried beans and some uh, spinach or cream spinach. There's a lot of ways to go here. Okay, Mr. Smarty Pants Reed, I don't have all those things in my fingertips. Yep. That's where restaurant kitchens and home kitchens do really differ. The key there is prep. They've got cooks who do a lot of the labor, and they do the cooking, but they do a lot of the labor for the prep, and they have all these things, pans and pans and pans of cut onions and mushrooms and peppers and whatever you've got. They've got all, they have these things there to work with, so it's easy-ish. How does the home cook compete with this? Well, that's actually a trick question. The, the answer is you don't. 
there isn't this isn't a how can I make this dinner like the restaurant thing. This is, I think, a flaw in the thinking and in the approach to cooking dinner, and that might be one of the drawbacks of so much Food Network TV. I think the proliferation of food shows and cooking shows and cooking game shows has done a great deal, a benefit, a great deal to raising awareness of ingredients and cooking styles and all these really fabulous, fun, tasty possibilities. But it also brought this expectation that you should be able to cook like a three-star Michelin chef in 27 minutes. That last part isn't realistic. It just isn't. So let's put our mindset back into the home kitchen and the things that we have to work with. And really, more importantly, with the things we have is the profoundly limited space that we have. So we don't have all those ingredients at our fingertips. What do we do? Well, cheat. There's a couple of ways to cheat. You can buy cans of things. Now, I don't particularly recommend buying canned green vegetables. That's pretty much yuck. But buying cans of cooked dried beans, that'll save you at home a lot of time. Uh, I don't necessarily mind buying um, canned, well, canned in the loose sense, packaged stock. If you just don't have time to make your own stock, it's some way to get some flavor into the dish. And I think that that's an acceptable ingredient to use from the grocery store. Uh, canned diced tomatoes or canned peeled tomatoes or canned stewed tomatoes, I think is probably fine. I am fully aware of the purest arguments that everything should be done from scratch. And this is one of those, uh, you, you have to decide. This is one of those areas of, do I make myself insane over going and, and buying a couple of pounds of Roma tomatoes just to just to score, blanch, chill, peel, dice, stew. We're talking, we're talking a fair amount of time at home and probably a big mess at home just to do something that, you know what, if really the deal is getting some food on the table because the family is hungry, I don't see the downside of canned products if the result is getting food on the table in a timely manner so everyone can eat and not be rushed and, and not have hunger pangs, I think that there's – I think the benefit is substantially greater than whatever negatives there may be with canned tomatoes. I just this, – this has to be a good thing. In the line of my purest thinking about some canned foods, I have very strong feelings against uh, dried instant rice. Uh, and I'm a little bit skittish on vacuum-packed cooked grains. Uh, they could be fine. And if you use them and you like them, I'm certainly in no position to tell you. Otherwise, personally, I find them a little bit weird. We found a way to – concessions isn't the right word because that sounds like we're giving something up. And the thing, and, But we're giving something good up, and I don't think that's the case. What we're giving up by using – 
uh, as necessary, a convenience product of cooked dried beans or diced tomatoes or stock in the container is uh, when we make that purchase of the thing, we're also buying ourselves uh, peace of mind that we know that the beans are going to be done and that we know that they're good because we've bought that company before. Uh, we're buying ourselves the ability to we're, we're buying ourselves time. We're saving time by not making these things and spending extra hours in the kitchen after dinner getting ready for the next day's dinner. Now, that does lead me into my next point. If coming home at 5 or 5.30 or 6 or whatever time you come home, you've got this small window of opportunity to feed people before hangry sets in, once that's done, if there is time at the end of dinner to, say, make a chicken stock. Beef stock takes a lot longer, but a chicken stock could be done in a couple of hours between end of dinner and going to bed. Uh, wild rice could be cooked. Uh, other rices could be cooked. There's ways after dinner to think about the things that take a little bit longer than the half an hour and white rice isn't necessarily one, but it's a possibility to do these things and to build your prep for the next day, including even some knife skills. So if you're going to cut mushrooms and peppers and onions and all this stuff, so the next day you know what you're going to have, that's one way you can get ahead. And certainly that is something that the restaurants are doing. They're getting not just prep done for today. Uh, one of the main uh, shifts in thinking in restaurants is work today for tomorrow. So we're going through the motions of uh, that's the wrong word. We're, we're cooking today's food, but also thinking about the chef is what is tomorrow's special, what's the next day's special. And as those menu items are being considered, how can some of these other ingredients be incorporated? So if we're going to make... Uh, uh, a gorgonzola pine nut stuffed chicken breast with herb spatzel and roast chicken jus. Well, we sold all the chicken, but I made a little bit extra spatzel. What do I do with that? Well, there's other things to do with that, including possibly a garnish for a soup. So as you are doing things at home, have a menu. So on Sunday night or Saturday or Friday, the day before you're going shopping, Think about your menu for the week. Think about what is going to be dinner one night that an extra portion would be a lunch for the next today. So let's think about that chicken breast. If we do one extra chicken breast sliced up and saute all that stuff before we add the pasta to the sauteed chicken and tomatoes and onions and olives and whatever else you've got there, take some of that garnish out, save that to have with some maybe leftover rice, maybe by itself, maybe with a uh, slice of buttered bread. There's some way to make a lunch out of that, and that saves some trouble wondering what are you going to do for lunch because lunches ain't free. It's got to come from somewhere. It may as well come from your house. So we've got this chicken dish. So what do we do? So I mentioned a minute ago we talked about uh, the skills that the woodworker has or that the painter has or that the cook has uh, of being techniques. Sautéing a whole chicken breast so that it doesn't stick to the pan 
It has a nice sear, and so that sear, that color, that caramelization on the meat, that's flavor. Uh, we've been told before that sear seals in the juices. Well, that's just flat out not true because it's not a waterproof seal, but it does taste good. So if you can saute a piece of chicken breast so that it doesn't stick in the pan, well, that's fundamentally the exact same technique for sautéing a filet of fish or a tenderloin of turkey or a flat iron steak or a pork medallion or whatever you've got, probably even tofu, but you need a hotter pan. Uh, that's a technique. So the sautéing of the whole muscle meat, once that skill is mastered, it pretty much translates to all of the other meats or proteins. In our one-pot meal, there's a couple of ways we can go, but really let's just build this, make this as easy as possible. So the meat is in there and it's halfway cooked, and we have these thinly sliced vegetables. Let's say we've got red onions and some garlic. Put the vegetables in the pan with the chicken and let them start to cook down. They might need a little bit of, uh, a little bit more uh, oil. Because the more, so you, you, have a, you have a teaspoon of oil. I'm just inventing something to make a point. You have a teaspoon of oil for a cup of chicken breast. But now you've added a half a cup of vegetables. Well, that teaspoon of oil was fine for a cup worth of stuff. Now you have a cup and a half worth of stuff. And the other thing that's happening is that as it's cooking and spitting, some of that oil is going out of the pan. Some of that oil is going into the food. You need to add some more oil. As everything starts to color, as everything starts to brown, that is beginning caramelization. And the same thing with the chicken breast getting color. The color around the vegetables is caramelization, and caramelization is the beginning of flavor. Burnt is the ultimate carbonization, which is carbon. And carbon, really nothing you can do with that except throw in the garbage. It just really isn't salvageable. I'm sorry to tell you that. And burnt garlic may be just awfulest of all awfuls. So mind your heat. Uh, some of the techniques are things that take practice and monitoring how hot is hot with the ingredients on the pan changes. And as I mentioned in um, I'm not sure what episode it was. We talked about sautéing. I think it was probably the, the soups part. As you're sautéing all of your things before you add the liquid for your soup, the same thing is applying to the sautéing of your food for the pasta dish. The longer it cooks, the hotter the food gets, the higher the temperature in the pan is going to go. And the sound of the pan is going to change. It's going to go from a low pitch to a high pitch. The higher the pitch goes, the higher the heat is going in the pan, the less water seems to be available to the pan. So something needs to go on. You need to either add a little bit of oil or this is the time to add uh, the tomatoes, the tomato sauce, maybe maybe a half a tablespoon of water into the pan to take some of that heat out. These are more techniques that come with practice, and really the only way you're going to get good at cooking is the way you got good at woodworking, or the way you got good at painting, or the way you got good at accounting. Practice. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. Now, it's going to be pretty easy to get really tired of one-pot pasta dishes every night. Uh, one of the ways you can cheat up 
is if your grocery store deli has whole roasted chickens, get a whole roasted chicken. Um, maybe two, depending on how big your family is, depending on what ideas you can do with some of the leftover chicken, if there is any. Maybe maybe a chicken salad for a chicken salad sandwich for lunch the next day. Maybe pulling some of that extra leftover chicken meat and making some ramen. Now, actually, I'm, I'm not opposed to ramen. I am opposed to the ramen spice packet. Uh, and this is a place where I would make uh, my own chicken broth for the ramen because I would want the flavor. But I'd definitely make my own chicken ramen spice mix. And I'll put that up on the show notes page at culinarylibertarian.com slash 28 for homemade chicken ramen spice. Uh, really good, and you can tweak it to your own preferences. But I find that much superior to the junk in the little silver envelope. One way you might be able to emulate some of the restaurant atmosphere is to delegate. If you have a spouse or children of sufficient age willing and able to hold the knife, put them to work. Cooking dinner is an excellent way for Several things to happen, and this is one of the things I mentioned in, in the baking episodes and in the uh, Muffins Cookbook, is working with, especially your kids, but working as a family to the end goal of getting dinner is a good way to build a little family culture and community. Now, I recognize not everybody has a, a kitchen suitable to that, <laughs> including me. <laughs> And so it's it's hard, and it's it it might be more of a test of patience than than not. But if you can set them at the table and have them pick the beans or or participate in some way or do napkin folds or set the table fun and make it you know there's there's ways to get people involved, but have have some of these jobs delegated or even uh, dicing up the chicken breast for the chicken salad or helping cut the vegetables for a tuna salad. It's just opportunities to delegate, but also get something more than just the labor out of the time spent together. When I cook with my kids in what is sometimes too small of a space, I will share with them stories of when I cooked with my mom and what my favorite foods were, and it sort of helps them get to know their grandma since they don't have that chance, uh, and also gets to know, they get to know their aunt and uncle, uh, as we don't get to see either of them as much as we want. Uh, we used to have uh, Thanksgiving at my dad's mom's house, and we did even as kids have some things to do, and usually we were downstairs setting the table to get out of the way of the adults. But the only time anyone ever remembers my dad's mom swearing was one Thanksgiving. Uh, she was holding a pot of gravy. It slipped from her hand, and she exclaimed as loud as possible the short version of excrement. <laughs> 50 years later, we're still telling that story. So it was 
it was funny. So memories can be built. So some basics then to get started are the basics of cooking. And I've talked about the basics of cooking in a couple of previous episodes, which I will link to on today's show notes page. I know this may not be as helpful as you would want. I can't just tell you how to cook, uh, but putter around. Experiment with a few things and see this is this is how your skill set and your knowledge grows is just by doing stuff. Now, I'm just saying manage the heat and don't burn things because that's not going to be good. And that's a frustration that you can easily avoid as you're doing these things. You're building a foundation, you're building some technique and you're getting this you're getting these basic skills uh, into your fingers and into your brain, and that's really the the essence of what restaurant cooking is, just at a much, much larger level. It's basics of technique, basics of skill, executed <laughs> many, many, many times a night, sometimes all at the exact same time, because the the line, the kitchen line, the cook's line might be taking orders in and starting cooking the appetizers and then at the same time finishing the vegetables to put a dinner plate up and turn around and start another apps on the stove as those other apps are going on plates and it becomes really, really chaotic and it becomes really, really busy and that's something that feels the same in a home kitchen sometimes, but it's just... It, it's that frenetic pace doesn't depend on having 250 people sitting in the dining room. It just has to do with the timing of everything happening right now. <laughs> what do we do? So it takes practice. And that's that part can't be shortcutted. One of the things that you can make for dinner, which would work well for lunch if it doesn't get eaten for dinner, is a risotto. Now, risotto, uh, if you've ever watched the uh, Top Chef cooking TV show, it's it was kind of the joke for years that anybody who dared make risotto was going to be the person who got sent home. And the reason for that is it doesn't like to sit around. When risotto is done, it wants to be eaten then and there. Bad, bad, bad is the wrong word. But from a restaurant quality standpoint, uh, its quality diminishes as it sits around. It doesn't like to do that. But risotto is a pretty easy thing to do, and there is a really spectacular cookbook called Risotto, which I've used and recommended, and I'll put up on the show notes page for some basics. Uh, risotto can be done in about 18 minutes. Once you start the cooking, there's some time that goes into prep, cutting, dicing the um, onions and celery uh, as the base of the flavor um, if you're making a broccoli risotto. The broccoli stems, once they're once you pull off or peel the uh, woody outside, the inside part of broccoli stems is fantastic. It's got a great flavor. Uh, the inner core of a cauliflower, uh, cut up real small, is also really good flavor and a good, a good contribution to that chicken saute dish or a beef saute dish, by the way, curry and coconut and cauliflower, caramelized cauliflower. And this is kind of weird, but oh my gosh, this is so good. So instead of making um, the little florets of the cauliflower, 
Cut the cauliflower kind of in big planks. Just leave the whole thing whole and maybe half inch or more planks. So you get this giant cross section that looks like a brain. Salt it pretty, pretty nicely. Let the salt pull some of the water out and then a light curry powder on that. And then caramelize that on slow heat uh, with some whole butter and get a good caramel color on that. Then turn that over and then add a little bit of coconut milk and put a lid on it and maybe a little bit of water because the water, when you add water to sauces or even to risotto or to some of these things, you're adding nothing. It's just water. Water's going to come away in steam. What you're actually adding is time, not the herb, but like on the clock. You're adding time for that thing to cook. So a little bit of water in the coconut oil, and the wrong word, in the coconut milk is going to give you more cooking time for the heat and the steam and the flavor to go into that cauliflower. And once it's done, and I like mine, <laughs> I think my vegetables hammered actually. Uh, once it's really done, oh, that oh, man, it's just is just spectacular. I love it so much. The kids hate it, but man, is it good. So anyway, that's so. There's the thing to do with cauliflower. Um, use the cauliflower stem diced small, broccoli stem diced small. Use parsnips. Use fennel. Use anything that you like. Put it in at the beginning of the saute for the risotto, and that's just going to make your risotto have a level and layers of flavor that wouldn't be there otherwise. If if all this dicing is something you don't necessarily have time for when you come home, this is an opportunity for organization for the next day. If you know you're going to have, say you're going to make, um, oh, I don't know, well, a bolognese would take, really, you would want to do that the day ahead just because of the way the flavors develop as it sits, but you could do it then and there. So you dice your carrots and celery and onions. Um, bolognese traditionally doesn't get garlic, even though that's, it sounds Italian, but they don't do it. Um, but you can because it's your house. Um, and it doesn't actually get tomatoes. It gets tomato paste. But again, your house, your rules, uh, there isn't any Bolognese police for food. Um, you can do a lot of that prep ahead of time. So if you're doing a risotto, if you know you've got 20 minutes, you've got to get the stock hot, you can do these things ahead. There's ways, and, and you'll discover in your own kitchen with your own stuff, because I don't know what containers you have, ways to make your next day's task a little bit easier. One of the really important steps in cooking, and this goes as a step throughout the cooking process, but really even up until the end, is seasoning. Now, I wrote on the blog a... Uh, an article about salt. I was of the mind, like probably every other cook on the planet, that salt is salt. It's the white stuff. comes in the box. You just pour it on the food. Well, in looking through some information to verify that I was right, I ended up disproving myself phenomenally. Sodium chloride, table salt, is in fact sodium chloride, but to say that that's where it starts and ends is to completely and horribly misunderstand the salt that is available. And it is possible to spend a lot of money on salt. Uh, I don't, that's up to you. I no longer buy the free flowing white stuff in the blue box or even in the bulk section because what I found out is that salt has been heat treated to the point where it kills everything else that was there. And that was the first thing, like, wait a minute, there was more stuff there? There was. So it's heat treated to very high temperatures, 
then bleached to make it white, and then some things else are added to it, and that's a variety of different things. Potassium, um, I can't even say the word, so I'm not going to try. Uh, and those things help keep the salt free-flowing out of the box. So what you're getting is sodium and chloride, and as it happens, sodium is vital for human life. The, your, your body won't function without sodium. What, what you're missing in plain, boring, white, free-flowing sodium chloride is all of the other 80 or so micronutrients that were removed. Iodine is, in some sea salts, naturally occurring. You don't need it in your salt. Magnesium and manganese and copper and zinc and just the list goes on and on and on. And it turns out that all of these other micronutrients are just as vital to human health. And in that white salt, you're not getting them. So I am a proponent of other white salts that aren't free-flowing. Uh, sea salt, yes, all salt is from the sea. I mean the good stuff. Um, I use uh, a couple of them. I use a white Mayan sea salt to get from Savory Spice. I also buy from my local store a Himalayan pink salt. Uh, I've got a couple of other boutique salts, but now I say that with kindness and not as a pejorative. You can read all about the, the salt article at culinarylibertarian.com slash sodium, and I'll make a link for that on the show notes page as well. But the real important takeaway is don't omit the salt. How salt works or why flavor happens, if you've had under-seasoned food, you say, this tastes like cardboard. This is terrible. What's going on? This is awful. Our bodies have a small level of salt already. So if the food we're eating doesn't even at least match the equilibrium of our salt, then it tastes bland. So for food to have uh, flavor that is of the food, then the food needs to have a little bit more salt than our taste buds have. Now, I'm not entirely sure I know what that is, but I'm pretty sure that if you did, say, a half a teaspoon to a teaspoon of salt per 100 grams of cooked product, that's probably a good place to start for proper seasoning. All right, Mr. Smarty Pants, how much is 100 grams of food? Well, your standard apple is approximately 200 grams. So start with, say, still half a teaspoon and add a little bit more, add a little bit more, and taste along the way. Have some tasting spoons by the stove so you can taste what you're making. Despite all the old wives' tales, and I recently had a chat with a bunch of people in one of my cooking Facebook groups, it is not possible to unsalt food. You can try every trick that they say. Put in the potato, put in the crust of bread, put in the middle of the bread, put in the whatever you want. All that does, <laughs> it doesn't work. The potatoes cook and they make mush. Now you have mashed potato over salty thing. The only, there's two ways. Under season and work your way up or make another batch. Don't add salt and add those two together. If you have some granny way that satisfies you to unsalt food, well, that's great. It's, this isn't science fact. This is my opinion, but I've seen more times than never it doesn't work. Starting with basic techniques, and basic techniques are 
cooking proteins in the bare pan properly, and that means the right amount of heat. So you want just to see a little bit of the smoke in the pan come, and then put the meat in the pan. If you're doing sliced chicken, same thing. You want a hot pan. Hot pans will tend to not stick, whereas a cold pan, put the food in there, man, oh man, you need a chisel and a jackhammer to get that stuff out. So that's 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 technique, that's skill, that's practice, that's 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 cooking. All right, my goal here was to show you that coming home from work and making a dinner or making dinners or planning to have dinners doesn't need to feel like you're a contestant on some short-time food TV show. And it doesn't need to be drudgery or pain. Uh, this is something that uh, should be at least <laughs> not dreaded. Hopefully, we'll be looking forward to making dinner. And yes, you know, some days it's hard. Some days you feel like Sisyphus. And some days it goes easy, and sometimes you get the kids involved, and that's okay. Like painting or woodworking or accounting, it's baby steps. Start with the small things. Find a find a cookbook. Find a website. Find somebody who writes recipes that you understand, that makes sense to you, and you can do. And begin your journey with simple things. And once you have some basic techniques down, then you should have the skill and the confidence to try something more. And none of us came into this world being experts in anything. It took time. So it's I, I know as well as anybody how frustrating it is to have an expectation and to visualize the finished thing and then have it fall short. It's really bothersome, but soldier on. If you have any questions, please do feel free. Go find me in the Eating Liberty Facebook group. You can drop me a note at the uh, email on the bottom of the podcast page. You can find me over at the Culinary Libertarian page on Facebook. Um, I'm out there. If you got any questions, let me know. I'd be happy to talk. Let's talk cooking. Let's talk baking. But let's talk food. All right, folks, that's going to do it. Uh, a few things. Savory Spice, which I mentioned a few minutes ago, is an affiliate spice company, and I love their stuff. There's a banner on the show notes page, and if you go over to my YouTube page, culinarylibertarian.com slash YouTube, you can see me unpacking one of my recent shipments. I also did talk about knives, and yes, you can spend a lot. If you're a home cook, I don't see a reason to do that. However, there is a correlation between cost and quality of steel used to make the knife. I have a page for knives and sharpening information, culinarylibertarian.com slash stone, and you can click through the links and see what works for you and your budget. If all those links are a little too much, just head over to culinarylibertarian.com slash 28. And all the links are there. Have a great week, and I'll see you soon. That's the high sound of a hot pan. That pitch, that high, high pitch. 
Now add as the pan being tossed. Add something cold to the pan and the pitch drops. Not too very much. It's hard to discern, but it has a little bit. The other thing going on is, since I added more stuff, I need more fat. So I'm putting some fat. You can hear that's the fat hitting the pan. So the temperature is dropping because there's more stuff. And there's a slight change in pitch. So I want a high heat. I want to maintain that high heat. Because that's garlic. So in a minute. So this is the veg mix for gumbo. <laughs> and so I'm going to... So What's in there is, normally it would be the Trinity, celery, onions, and peppers. But we have somebody in the house who can't eat peppers. So I use scallions and a little extra onion. And of course, since it's gumbo, okra. So let's take a listen. Say, All right, so the sound is pretty high still, which is that's okay. So what I'm going to do, i do a couple things here. I'm going to switch pans. What's going to happen is I'm going to take the veggies out and I'm going to put in the... That was a loud bang. Put in the sausage and the chicken. And normally, of course, ah, nice high sound, good pitch. So that's the sausage going in. And that's going to need a little bit more fat. So we go over and get the uh, I keep rendered chicken fat on hand. So I can hear the sound. All right, so, lot of stuff going on. So the blue So basically, when we take a stock, in this case, chicken stock, and thicken it with a roux, that is a velouté, and that is the base for our gumbo. Yeah, boy, howdy! Look at that. Nice brown on the sausage. Chicken goes in. It's hard not to get your Cajun on when you... <laughs> Alright, so that is going to saute a little bit. Uh, I'm cooking... Now, if I had put the chicken and the sausage into the soup. Of course they would have cooked, but I would have been denied yummy caramelization. Alright, so when that gets to be a good color, and I don't 
doesn't need to be done. It's going to finish in the soup. I just want color. I'm going to add the veg back to that. Then I'm going to add the tomatoes to that. And you hear the whoa, the tone of the pan will change drastically. Then all that goes into the velouté and it just cooks for a little while. The last thing it's going to get is the seasoning mix, which has got uh, sassafras or gumbo filet in it. And that's going to go into the hot pan so I get the flavors out of the dried herbs and spices. So what I did, took all that dry stuff and mixed it with some water, make a little paste out of it. So that water is going to uh, turn into steam and that steam is going to activate the oils that are in the dry spices to make that really fragrant flavor come out. And... So there's some of that. Let the veg going back so we hear the, the sound tone has changed. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. And before the tomatoes, the uh, go in the herbs spice mix goes in. Right, so we have water. Now we can hear a change again, change for the low. And now the tomatoes. And and that's that. So now it's a matter of pre up and wait. Put these two things together and let them cook. That there's your gumbo.